Good morning. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Rob Heron. I'm the youth pastor here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And Hal is out of town this week, and he asked me to preach. And the series this summer is What's on Your Mind? Uh, we get to pick any passage from Scripture and preach from it, whatever's on our minds. Um, no small task. But what's been on my mind is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And as I got into studying this passage, it actually was a lot deeper and richer than was actually on my mind. So we're going to learn this morning from God's mind and his heart. But um, I was speaking with a friend this week who told me about how important these verses have been for her and her life. That one night um, when she was a younger Christian, um, she came across these verses and she read them and it just captured her mind and her imagination and her heart. And she did something uncharacteristic. She took paint and when she went in her bedroom and she painted the verses on her wall and just kind of lavishly strokes all across the wall these words. And this morning what I want us to do is to paint these words on our hearts and on our minds because this is the central heart message of the gospel. This is who Jesus Christ really is. This is who God is. So this morning, receive these words. Know that this is God's word to you. This is who he is. So you can read along with me, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name uh, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. God, I thank you for your truth, and I pray that your truth would set us free, um, would set us free um, from anxiety, from insecurity, to show us the security and the joy that is found in you, not by seeking our own way, but by following Jesus down. And I pray that your spirit would work this truth into our hearts this morning. In your name, amen. There have been a lot of things that have been said about me throughout my life, but one of the things that has never been said about me is that I have a good sense of direction. Um, no one has ever said it. If someone did say that, I imagine that person is probably lost right now from taking my directions. I, it's just, it's, I've never been able to um, find my way anywhere. That's why I'm so glad that I live in this century where you can have maps on phones. Because if I was living in the American frontier, I probably would get lost and have to start my own colony just by myself, getting lost in the woods. It's just not, it's not my thing. And another, an example 
of my directionless skill happened uh, a week ago at the high school summer retreat. We, uh, we took 22 of our high school students, precious students with us, to Waynesville, North Carolina, where we would study the Bible, but also do a lot of hiking out there in the woods. And at one point, we went to this, um, this great park called Graveyard Fields with these overlooks and trails and a couple of waterfalls. We got there after a long drive, and half the group needed to go to the bathroom, and half the group didn't. And so Morgan Cogswell, who's the middle school, high school director here, told me, why don't you take half the group and just go ahead, head on down to Graveyard Fields? And I thought to myself, this is, may not work. Um, <laughs> I was like, well, how do you get there? And she said, it's really easy. All you have to do is to, you get to one fork in the road, and you take a right. And then you get to another fork in the road, and you take another right. That's it. Just do that. And so I was like, huh, you know, this could work. And I just didn't want to like, tell her, I can't do that. So I took these 11 students, about half the group, and another leader with me. And we started walking down this trail towards whatever graveyard field was. I didn't really know. And we get to the first fork, take a right, and then we get to the second, but there's a sign that says, pointing to the left, it says graveyard fields. And then the sign pointing left was pointing to something I didn't recognize. The sign pointing left was going uphill. And it looked, uh, it actually looked a little bit cleaner. More people were heading up that way. The way down, less people were going that way. Didn't know what was down there. But in my mind, I had this, this moment of, the sign says, go up. But Morgan said, go down. So, of course, I went up. <laughs> and we started hiking for about 15 minutes, and we, we haven't gotten there. It was supposed to be a short hike, and uh, Morgan and the rest of the group is nowhere. I, I, I don't know where they are. So I tell our leader, just keep on heading that way. I'm sure that it's down that way, but I'm going to go find Morgan and just make sure that everything's okay. So I run down the trail, and I go, and I continue, actually, I go down to the fork in the road. No one's there. So I go down the downward path, and there I find Morgan already hiking up. Both of us are out of breath, and I ask her, where is everybody? And she says, where is everybody? I say, I don't know. And so she says, I told you to take a right, and you took a left. Why did you do that? And I thought, I don't know. So at this point, I have to go run back up the hill as fast as I can, running through these trails up roots and up the mountain. And there's the different forks in the road. The more I go up that path, and I still can't find our group. And I'm running past different people, moving families aside. And um, basically, I started thinking, what if I only come back with half the group? And you know, maybe they would say that's a 50% success rate, and they would be okay with that. Eventually, I find them, and they, they were a little bit frustrated with me because they hiked 30 minutes up in the wrong direction. But overall, we got, we got back down. But the point is, I, I had this moment of thinking, do I follow the promise down or I follow the sign up? Which way am I going to go? And this is a good picture for these two ways that we have in life. There's the path going up, and what I call, what we're going to call upward mobility, and there's the path down, downward mobility, which is the way of Jesus. The path up, the path of upward mobility, what this is, it's saying that the goal of our lives is to improve our lives. The goal of our lives is to succeed, for things to get better and better over time. If I make this amount of money right now, 10 years from now, I should be making a little bit more money. If I have this type of job now, then I should have a better job 10 years from now. Everything is supposed to just get better and better. And this is the American dream. 
It is. Being able to improve, achieve our vision for the best life right now. That's the American dream. And we actually, we teach our children in many ways in this culture that the way, um, the way up is up. The way up is, is getting better and better. They need, uh, maturity means getting healthier, getting smarter, getting better grades in school, so that by the time they finish high school, that they have enough good grades or better grades in order to set themselves up well to go to a good school and to compete, because you've got to make it in this world. That's upward mobility. And if we're honest, upward mobility seems like the path to joy and to fulfillment, the way to more money, less stress, more vacation time, more me time. That's the path to joy and fulfillment. And the way down, less money, less security, weakness, servanthood, humility, that seems like the road to hell. Seems like the road to death. And the result of this, because we follow the upward path, it looks attractive, is that everyone ends up being their own theater of self-focused ambition, where life is a stage, it's my stage, and the story is achieving my best life right now, getting what I want, improving my station in life, a little bit by a little bit. And uh, I'm the protagonist. The story is mine, and then people are at best supporting actors. Or, if nothing else, they're props, actually, in our, our self-stage. And the result of this is misery and disunity. We know that if our goal is comfort, we end up with more anxiety. If our goal is pleasure and entertainment, we become numb to everything that doesn't entertain us. And we're, disun- we're not unified. Because everybody is their own monologuing actor just trying to grasp their way up, climbing over each other. One thing I want you to know before, before I say anything else, what, my assumption is that comfort, achievement, success, skill, honing your craft, whatever it is, that these are good things. And they're gifts of God to glorify himself. I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm not saying that taking a job promotion is bad. I'm not saying having more money is bad. Vacation is good. The question is, what is your goal? Is your goal in life upward mobility, or is it following Jesus? Because Jesus says the way is down. Whoever loses his life will find it. And the question this morning is, do you take Jesus at his word? Do you believe him when he says, follow me down? Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is teaching us this morning and promising us that we must follow Jesus by sharing in his downward spiral of servanthood. And it's only then that we will share in his glory. So we must share downward spiral of servanthood, then we will share in his glory. That's what I wanted to talk about this morning. And there are two ways of, of looking at this passage, or two different sections. And the first is that the way up leads down. And the second is that the way down leads up, connected. The first one, though, is that the way up leads down. If you look here at Philippians 2, Paul begins this passage in many ways by making a plea to the Philippians, saying, your life needs to be characterized by Christ-likeness. But there's, we would make a mistake here by saying, just be like Jesus. Um, a couple years ago, or maybe 10 years ago, there were bracelets that were really popular called WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? And the idea of the bracelet is that you look at it, and in any situation you're in, you ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? 
And whatever he, whatever he would do, that's what you should do. And the good part of these bracelets, it's not that I, I'm not making fun of these bracelets. The good part of them is that it reminds us that what Jesus did in his life is not just a provision for the forgiveness of your sins. It's more than that. You are to embody Jesus' life. But if we just said, be like Jesus, how impossible of a command would that be? Because look at the ideal life that Jesus led. Let's look here at verse 3. This is the way of Jesus. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The way of upward mobility, selfish ambition, so grasping at what you want, and vain conceit, which literally means empty vanity. So I need to get what I want, and more than that, I deserve to get what I want. I deserve my way. On the opposite side, the downward mobility of humility, which is self-forgetfulness, and counting others more significant than yourself, meaning counting their needs as more significant than yours, their desires as more important than yours, listening to their voice above your own. This is a hard command, because this is an ideal life. But this is not an impossible command because Paul's not saying, do anything from your own power. He's not just saying, be like Jesus. And you look at verse 1, what he's saying here is there's participation in Christ. We're sharing something in Christ. So you read with me. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being a full accord. What Paul is saying here is that through your faith in Christ, you are united to him. And the Holy Spirit has come into your life to shape your heart and your character to reflect Jesus' character, his heart. So that we have the same mind, the same love, and the same, the same goal. When it says, have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus, saying, have one goal, the goal of Jesus, which is Downward mobility, servanthood, humility, self-giving. That is the way of Jesus. Jesus, as a human being, shows us what it actually means to be a human being. But more than that, he actually shows us who God is, God's heart. He shows us his equality with God. You can read in verse 6, it says that, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. So first he was in the form of God, which means that form of God means he has all the essential character qualities of God. He has his justice, his goodness, his truth, but also his divine right, his perfection, his deserving of all honor and praise. But Paul goes on to say, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which means he didn't account his rights as God a thing to be taken advantage of. And many people debate here that word, though, before he was in the form of God. Some people have translated that as because he was in the form of God. So because he was in the form of God, he took on the form of a servant. He took on all the essential character qualities of a slave, where his goal in life was to lift up others and care for him, care for them. The heart of God is emptying, self-emptying. Not Jesus didn't empty himself of being God, but he emptied himself of every right that he had, the right he had to luxury, the right he had to wealth, 
And instead of taking those things, grasping at them, he took the downward path to wash the feet of those who misunderstood him. Emptied himself to the point of death. Death on a cross, hung there for the sins of those who rejected him, for his enemies. That's the heart of God. Um, My grandfather, who is a hero of mine, but an imperfect man, but he uh, was a very interesting man. And he had all these little kind of funny sayings that he would tell us grandchildren that we're supposed to believe. And one of those was, uh, like a good grandfather, he would feed me until I was about to explode and then try to convince me to eat more food. And what he would say when I would eat, I would be finished with the meal and he'd be trying to force peach cobbler on me, which now I don't understand why I would refuse that. But, but I'd be so full, like I wanted to just didn't want to eat any more bites. And so he would say to me, it'll put hair on your chest. Is what he would say every time. And if I had been a more literally-minded five-year-old, I probably would have lost total trust in him because that promise yielded little fruit. And he, he also would say, um, if a little bit is good, then a lot is better, which led him to put on enough cologne and um, aftershave to kill a large horse. And uh, so everybody knew when he was coming. But another one of his sayings that he told my dad and that my dad told to me is that, You've never arrived. So don't ever think you're so big or so important that something is beneath you. And uh, my grandfather was very influential in his community. He was a high school principal and very, um, very well respected. But I remember at his funeral, the pastor there told one story about him, which is that close um, to his death, a couple months beforehand, the pastor had walked in late after a Sunday service, and he found my grandfather hands and knees on the floor, cutting off Ray from the carpet to make it look nicer, cutting off these little pieces, very meticulous, very very servant-like. And that was a story he told about my grandfather, and I've always loved that. Because my grandfather was an imperfect man, but he, he passed that down to my dad, and I've seen my dad embodying that. If I think about what I want to embody in my family name, it's that heart of hands and knees on the carpet cutting the fray off. Not grasping, but emptying. But if we want to embody Jesus' not only his name, but his life, to share in his life through the Spirit, that means giving up the goal of self-focused ambition. There are three ways I want to talk about this. There's three temptations of self-focused ambition. There's the temptation to be powerful, the temptation to be relevant, and the temptation to be spectacular. We know that we are tempted by power. Because it's easier to control people than to love people. It's easier to be heard than to listen. Husbands, you know that you so often want to domineer over your wife and make sure she knows who's in charge. Or fathers, you know you want to make sure your children know who's in charge at all times, sometimes to the expense of actually loving them. We want to control people, manipulate them. But not only that, we want to control and manipulate our own lives. I know for myself how difficult it is when I'm in the middle of um, something that seems very important to me. If someone interrupts me and asks for something, I want to tell them, don't you know how important this is? Or when someone asks me to do something extra in my job, I want to say to them, don't you know how much I already serve? I deserve this me time. I deserve to be left alone. Tempted to be powerful, to control others, control our own lives. But the way of downward mobility says, give that up. Give up your power. And also, 
the temptation to be relevant, we must give up. Relevant meaning, I am as valuable as what I produce. My value is in my work, in my education, in my skill set. Which means that we spend, many of us spend more time on our jobs, more energy, more obsession than we need to because they define us. And not only that, relevance means that my relationships with people are based on what they can give me. So the people we spend time with are those that offer something back. So we neglect the awkward, the lonely, the poor. We want to be relevant. We want to be cool. We want to be cool. We need to give that up for downward mobility. But also the temptation to be spectacular, which means is not only am I as valuable as what I produce, but I need to be acclaimed for what I produce. People need to talk about what I produce, which means that we spend a lot more time thinking about how seen we are than other people are. Spend a lot more time thinking about our Instagram feed than we think about encouraging and affirming other people's gifts. But to share in Jesus' life, our lives individually and communally must take the shape of downward mobility. And the path is self-emptying. Not trying to control people, but emptying ourselves out in love for them, in listening ears to them, emptying ourselves, not thinking about our relevance, but being present with those who have nothing to offer back to us, pouring ourselves out, not thinking about being spectacular, but affirming others, having the goal of lifting others up. And the result of this is, one, unity. Think about if not just a few of us, but all of us believe God's promise here and live this life of self-emptying love? What if we embodied divine love like this as a community? Older serving the younger, powerful serving the weaker, all of us moving towards weakness and not towards upward mobility. Think about how beautiful that would be, how transformative that would be. That should be our desire this morning. But also the result is restored humanity. Upward mobility looks like the path to being more of myself, And who am I if I'm not seen and heard? But this passage is telling us that if the heart of God is servanthood and self-giving love, then your image-bearing is servanthood. The way you image God is through humility, giving of yourself. So the way up, the way up to knowing God, seeing Him, and being restored as a human being is sharing in this life of humility. So that's the first thing. The way up leads down. But secondly, the way down leads back up. The danger here at this point is asking, okay, I will give of myself, but what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? What encouragement, what joy can I, can I gain from this? And this is not the mind of Christ. Because Jesus didn't ask the question, what do I get out of my self-emptying? He trusted the Father enough to just empty himself, even to the point of death. And so Jesus is lifted up, but not as a reward. You look at verse 9, it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. But that doesn't mean that God rewarded Jesus for his work. God didn't say, like, okay, you've done this hard thing, so now I'm going to lift you up. What God did by exalting Jesus was this great yes to Jesus' divinity. This great yes to this is what it looks like to be me. This is the Godward life, the servant life. He exalted him and said, 
Jesus is Lord. And what that means is, it says that he was exalted and given the name that is above every name. Jesus is Lord. And Jewish people reading this would have known that the Lord there is is the connection back to the Old Testament's personal name for God, Yahweh. So the saying here is, Yahweh is Lord. And Lord also means highest, most sovereign, most powerful. So Jesus is God, and he is higher than everything. God has exalted Jesus to the highest possible degree. So when you look at him, you see the most powerful, most magnificent, most glorious being in this entire universe. And that's, that is the man who was hung on the cross. He is the one who is exalted. And the proper response to this says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The response to seeing Jesus exalted is that everything is subjected to him. Everything responds to him and praises him in adoration. And this is a future reality, but also a present reality. The reality for us as Christians is that Jesus one day will be revealed as the exalted Lord in fullness. And on that day, those outside of Christ will see him as he is, but in judgment. But those who are in Christ, who have placed their faith in him and share in his life, will see him as he is in joy. That's the future reality, which gives us assurance in the present. But the assurance it gives in the present is to say, right now, in everything, Jesus is Lord, to confess that. And seeing Jesus as he is, lifted up to the highest place, is actually the fuel for downward mobility. I'll explain what I mean by that. There was a really great battle in World War II called the Battle of Stalingrad, where Russian and German troops were fighting one another. And German airplanes had bombed this city, Stalingrad, to to rubble. There was nothing left. And Russian troops, as German, thousands and thousands of German troops were pouring in, they were becoming disheartened. But... uh, Many Russian snipers at this time, actually, basically gave uh, courage and assurance to the soldiers on the ground. There was one soldier in particular named Vasily Zaitsev. You might, if you've seen the movie Enemy at the Gates, this movie is telling the story of his life. And so in this city of Stalingrad, up above, in buildings that he was familiar with, he would um, shoot German soldiers down. So that more and more German soldiers were actually afraid of him. They heard his name, and they knew that this guy is up above us. We don't know where he is, but he's demoralizing our army, him and all of the people that he's trained. And the Russian soldiers on the ground knew that they would look up and feel confident to know that there's someone up there who is secure, in control, and powerful, so I can be down here on the ground. And that is much like the way Jesus' exaltation gives us confidence. Confessing Jesus is Lord as the goal of your life is the fuel for downward mobility. Seeing Jesus as exalted means that you, instead of moving towards power, can move towards weakness. Instead of focusing on controlling other people, you can focus on loving them. Instead of focusing on gaining more money, you can focus on giving it away, finding ways to distribute it to your community and to those in need. You don't have to store it up. And you don't have to control your own life. Jesus is in control and you are not. So you don't have to um, control every hour of your day. Interruptions are all right. Instead of relevance, if you see the exalted Jesus and it's your goal to confess him, you can move instead towards security. 
knowing that your worth and your value is not based on what you produce. It's not based on your job. It's not based on your money. It's not based on your education. It's based on the love that God poured out for you in Jesus. Your love is secure. And that means that you can work hard at your job and then still spend the amount of time you need to with your family. You can focus on being present in relationships and not obsessing over your schoolwork. You can be secure. Secure enough to actually embody Jesus' life out into people that are sometimes hard to love, just like you are, just like I am. You can go out and love them. You don't need to be relevant. You don't need to be cool. You're secure enough to be present. And instead of being spectacular, if you see that Jesus is Lord, you can move towards simplicity, a quiet life, a life where you don't need to be seen and heard all the time. You don't need to assert yourself all the time. You can say, Jesus is spectacular, and he has loved me, given himself for me, and he has called me his own, so I can live a simple life. If 100 years from now, no one knows my name, if they don't know who Rob Heron is, that is fine, because Jesus remembers me. He knows me, and he has loved me. That is the assurance we get from this seeing Jesus as exalted Lord. And, but also, even more than confessing Jesus as Lord, God promises that in Christ, he will display the exalted Jesus through you, so that the world will see that Jesus is Lord through your life. But not through your success, actually. Through your defeat. What looks like defeat to the world. Giving away money looks like defeat in many ways. Being, not having to assert your own way looks weak. It looks like defeat. Being quiet sometimes looks like defeat. Being led instead of always having to lead looks like defeat. And the world calls it that, but it's actually success. Because when the world sees you not take grasp onto what you believe belongs to you and to give it away, what the world sees is that Jesus is the risen king of the universe. He does it through your defeat. But more than that, he does it right where you are. And this is very important to know. Jesus, God is glorified through Jesus because Jesus is risen, which means that you don't have to change your job, change your circumstances in order to glorify God. There are many valid reasons to change your job, change what church you're at, but before you do any of the things, you need to know that none of these things will add an ounce of glory to God or an ounce of value to your life. You don't need to change community groups in order to glorify God more. God may be working, God is working through you providentially in the circumstance you are in right now. You cannot add to his glory by changing your job. Any time you want, if you're going to change your circumstance, just know that Jesus is Lord. And he is working through you, not through your success, but through your defeat. But more than anything, Jesus is calling us to display his exalted glory with one another in unity. When we move down into humility and servanthood with one another, what we find is that Jesus, the risen Lord, is already there before us. Um, These three temptations I've been mentioning actually come from a book by a guy named Henry Nouwen, who was a priest, and for a long time he was actually um, working at Harvard. He had written many books. He was very Um, He's a great writer, great speaker, very well respected. But as he gained more success and more renown, what he found is that he he felt more and more in danger. He said, I felt my own soul was in danger. 
Because he had gone on the upward climb. He had been climbing the ladder of being a well-known, respected spiritual leader. But in that moment, what he did was he actually left Harvard and went to a community of mentally disabled people who were, um, this was not a well-known community, and these were people who were not able to offer back acclaim and praise. But he went there, and what he said that he found was the exalted and risen Jesus. And I'm going to close with this story. I love this. He uh, had gone on many speaking circuits before he had come to this community with the mentally disabled. And then um, after he went there, he started going on uh, speaking tours, actually with one of the members of the community, a man with a mental disability. And he's uh, in, in front of this crowd of a couple thousand people in Washington, D.C., and he's about to start speaking, and the crowd is clapping for him. It's well-loved, Henry Nowen, this well-loved speaker. And right as he's about to speak, right as the, the crowd's clapping, the man, Bill, with the mental disability who's there with him, says, he stands up and walks up to the stage and says, hey, I want to say something. And Henry Nowen says, in that moment, I started freaking out. What if he starts rambling? What if he just talks forever? What if he says something inappropriate? I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, this is going to be uncomfortable. And all that Bill says is, when Henry went to Boston, he took another guy with him. But here in Washington, he decided to take me. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. And he sat back down. And the crowd kind of, you know, wasn't sure what to do. And then they started applauding. Very, very simple moment. But on the, the flight home, Henry Nowen wrote this. As we flew back to, together to Toronto... Bill looked up from the word puzzle book that he takes with him wherever he goes and said, Henry, did you like our trip? Oh, yes, I answered. It was a wonderful trip, and I am so glad you came with me. Bill looked at me attentively and then said, and we did it together, didn't we? Then I realized the full truth of Jesus' words. Where two or three meet in my name, I am among them. In the past, I had always given lectures, sermons, addresses and speeches by myself, often I had wondered how much of what I had said would be remembered. Now it dawned on me that most likely much of what I said would not long be remembered, but that Bill and I doing it together would not easily be forgotten. I hoped and prayed that Jesus, who had sent us together and had been with us all during the journey, would have become really present to those who had gathered. What we find, like Henry Nowen found, when he gave up power, he gave up relevance, and he gave up this spectacular life, and he went to a place where there was little of that, what he found in Bill's life was that the exalted and risen Lord was working there, working in Bill's life, displayed through this other man and through Henry Nowen's humility, through giving up what looked like the promise of joy, by giving that up and following Jesus to a downward spiral of servanthood, what he found is joy. And that is the promise for all of us this morning, is that if we together, if we give up this promise that is empty and vain, but if we follow the risen Jesus into defeat, into weakness, we will share in his glory. And we will share encouragement and love with one another, both now and forever. Pray with me.